Hello, and welcome to episode 79 of the Tennis Abstract podcast. My name is Jeff Sackman from TennisAbstract.com. This week, I am joined with Paul Timmons. Hi there, Paul. Hi, Hi Jeff. Uh, Paul is on Twitter at PaulT underscore tennis, and he is a blogger at MyTennisAdventures.home.blog. Uh, his Twitter profile describes him as, I think, outspoken and annoying. So, I mean, with with a profile like that, I don't see how I could not have him on the show. And it, it, I'm really glad to have him on now because it, one of the things I wanted to to announce to all my listeners this week is that I wanted to crowdfund my travels for next year. So I'm looking to raise something in the neighborhood of 50,000 pounds. I know Paul is you know, a, at the cutting edge of, of fundraising for tennis oh, podcast yeah. travel. I, uh, I am the man to help you with that. <laughs> Yes, a big supporter of any podcast that needs to raise money for travel. Uh, I want to get into tennis journalism and maybe, for those of you who don't know who I'm making fun of, maybe we'll get into that later. If you, if you don't know who I'm making fun of, then that's probably okay. I don't need to be making any more enemies than I already have or dragging Paul in with me to the enemies I already have. <laughs> <laughs> but first order of business, this is something that you were, uh, you were in a bit of a Twitter fight about today. Um, I wa- you've done a lot of interesting writing about the ITF transition tour and the disadvantages of playing on the uh, playing on the ITF tour these days and gender inequality and the, a lot of interesting stuff about the lowest levels of tennis. But specifically, something a little weird happened this week. Kea Kanepi, who's just just outside the top 100, probably just outside the Australian Open entry cut until this week, entered a, a 15k, so the lowest level of tournament on the ITF. Uh, she ended up winning the tournament, didn't drop a set all week. And as a result, she gained a few ranking points. She's making the Australian Open cut now. I got the sense, Paul, you're not a fan of that move. No, in actual fact, I am a fan of that move in as much as um, if the system is there to for her to do that, then good good for her. Um, my, my issue is that um, she shouldn't be able to, but um you you stop that by having a play down rule um so you know anyone from say i don't know 200 250 um cannot play in a 15k event it's it's not a complex thing to do it's it's a very easy thing to do she's gamed the system and consequently as a result she's going to get direct acceptance into the australian open and earn 60,000 australian dollars more than she would if she was placed into the first round of qualifying um uh, you know it's a no-brainer on her part and it's it makes sense but it's just a stupid rule that the itf could have done something about a long time ago i mean very recently um, I've I seen Paula Badoza Gilbert, um, you know, inside the top 100, um, 88th in the world at one, I think I saw her at one point playing 25k events. Um, you know, this, it's, it's ridiculous. They're, they're far too good to be playing at that level. Um, but the ITF, for whatever reason, refused to, to put in a rule that stops that from happening. So, you know, it's, it's, it's on their heads as far as I'm concerned. I think uh, you might know better than I do. Correct me if I'm wrong. I think that at the lowest level, the 15K level, you're not allowed to enter if you're within the top 100. Does that sound right to you? 
Yeah, I believe that to be the case. Um, so that's even, still, yeah, that still leaves a pretty big gap of let's. You said two hundred or two fifty. I could even probably go up to three hundred for some of these events, but at least a hundred players who really shouldn't be playing at this level, but are. I mean, can, you said you don't know why they haven't implemented this rule. Can you think of any reasons, any positives that would come from leaving these tournaments open to players at Kanepi's level? None. Because, I mean, you know, she's she's an Estonian woman who's been playing in the Czech Republic this week, so it's not even as if um, it's a home crowd thing or anything like that. I, I, I don't, I don't get it. You wouldn't see it on the men's side. It, it doesn't happen. Um, uh, I think the highest ranked player that's played this week on the men's side is. Um, Roberto Ortega Amado, who's 232 in the world. Um, he's played an event this week, I think a 15k. Um, but you don't see it with the men. But that, that, that goes on to a wider point on, on a blog that I wrote that the women have huge inequality further down the ladder in terms of events. Um, so the futures events are fairly similar at 15 and 25k levels with men and women. But once you look, start looking at the challenger level and the female equivalent, there is a huge disparity. Um, and that's why you get much, much stronger fields on the women's side in 25ks than you do on the men's. It's, yeah, that, 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 it, that needs to be addressed massively. Yeah, I, I agree. And that's something I, I wanted to talk to you about as well. Um, uh, on that note about the 25Ks attracting stronger fields, I think it was Danielle Collins who entered a, a 25K in the U.S. last week. And she's, I think, number 31 in the world. I mean, she's been out with injury. So I, I can kind of understand her coming back for kind of a, uh, getting back in the swing of things. But, uh, but still pretty extreme and not something you'd ever see on the men's side. So, your your last blog that you wrote about the the economics of the women's tour was was prompted by Ashley Barty winning the tour finals in Shenzhen. Um, she took home like four point two million dollars or something. I mean, a record setting prize purse. And someone was quoted as saying it was a big moment for women's tennis or something like that. And you seem to be pretty skeptical. I mean, all all credit to Ashley Barty for winning a big tournament and making all that money, but but you see that as not terribly representative of of the economic health of the women's game. Is that fair? Absolutely. So let's be clear about this: the top ten female tennis players are multimillionaires. Um, in women's sport as a whole, female tennis players dominate um, for the highest earning athletes on the female side. You know, tennis players absolutely dominate, dominate those numbers. These aren't poor people. These are multimillionaires. Okay, so it's important to stress that. Further down the ladder, so if we're talking roughly from 150 to 400 in the world, there is um, over $6 million more in prize pool money available on the men's side versus the women's. So... I don't see how you can celebrate um, multimillionaires, you know, doubling the prize pool of their of, of a tournament that already pays out pays out millions. You know, this this didn't go from uh, half a million to four four point two million. It's gone from you know two and a, nearly two and a half million to to this amount of money. It's, it's you know 
staggering amount of money that they were winning anyway. And when you have such a disparity further down, I think you're just dressing up um, the problem. I just think you're you're ignoring the problem. And I don't think it's something that should be celebrated. I think that there, there has to be serious questions raised about about that disparity. Um, but I don't think people want to do it because you have to then ask much harder questions. And I think people, I think the sport as a whole is just trying to avoid that. Yeah, I think I, I would I would agree with that, that, that the sport as a whole is perfectly happy to to talk about the big dollars and, and ignore what's going on further down the scale. And just to get a sense of, of what level we're talking about here, I have the sense that on both the men's and women's sides, players in the top 100 are doing okay. I mean, they're certainly not multimillionaires unless they spend some time in the top 10. But if you are, if you are a perennial top 100 player on the women's tour, you're, you're probably doing okay. But I mean, is that the cutoff on on the women's side, or is the is the cutoff where you can actually make money, make a living playing tennis? Is is it much harsher on the women's side than in the men's game? Um, it's definitely a lot tougher for the women um, further down. If you're talking about across the two main tours, you know the the majority of the tournaments that they're playing are sort of ATP 250s. And the female equivalent, which is the WTA International. Well, the WTA International has a total prize pool of, of 250,000, whereas the ATP equivalent starts at 595,000 US dollars. So it's more than double. Um, consequently, men, if they win that tournament, are winning more than double um, than their female equivalent. So you, you really have to look beyond just the headline grabbing numbers at the main events, there is a clear disparity between the two tours. And at the further and further you go down, it's more and more visible on the female side. I think the saddest bit about it is how they lack a voice. We've heard a lot from Vashek Pospisil this year about, you know, getting more money into the men's, into the game as a whole from the, from the Grand Slams. But I don't, you don't hear, I can't think of a vocal women, woman, sorry, that you could name that's been doing the equivalent on the female side. Um, so I don't know how they, how this gets resolved. They've got no voice at the moment and, uh, and there's a clear disparity. Yeah. It seems like a, a, a bit of a catch 22 because the, the players who, who do speak up on the men's side are often the ones who are maybe around the top 100 bubble or within the top 200. I'm th- like you mentioned, Pospisil is a good example. Uh, I mean, he's been ranked higher, but he's he's pretty far down these days. Noah Rubin is one who's who's made a lot of noise about some of these issues. So there are players who are able to stick around in professional tennis without being even necessarily top 50 players on a consistent basis. And it, it sounds like from, from the numbers you're sharing that if you're that far down the list on the women's side, unless you've got private backing, I mean, you're going to be playing mostly 25Ks. I mean, is it possible as that if you're, if you're ranked around number 200, like I think Noah Rubin is these days, you can't make a living as a women's tennis player, can you? No, uh, I, I would be fairly confident in saying, and I've spoken to a few players, but I don't want to sort of necessarily reveal names or numbers, but if you're uh, at around 200, they're, you're losing money. Um, it's not possible to be particularly profitable. Um, you know, you're just hoping that you're, you're 200. So 
you, you'll get into Grand Slam qualifying draws and you're just hoping that, you know, you can take that step and qualify because that's where your money is. That's, that's going to make the big difference on your year. So is this, is the gender difference, is this, I don't want to say the natural state of things, but is this the natural state of the market? I mean, the, the market determines what sponsors are supporting, what um, what localities are supporting. Uh, I mean, certainly China's throwing a lot of money behind the WTA events, but outside of China, you don't see a lot of uh, of countries or metropolitan areas really looking to spend a lot of money on women's tennis. So is, is there a solution to bringing the funding for the women's game up to the level where the men's game is? I don't know that there is because you've got to remember. I mean, even on the main tour, sometimes it's hard enough to watch all the te- all the action. Like the way they they divide up the TV, you know, you can it can be difficult for people in the states. Um, you know, for example, the Davis Cup recently. You know, the top men's competition wasn't easily viewable. So the further down you go, the lad down the ladder, this you know, it, thankfully on the men's side at the challenger level. Every match is live streamed. So if you're, you know, a potential sponsor, you've got um, a player that, that has some element of visibility. But at the ITF equivalent, there isn't that. They're very rarely streamed. So, you know, you're kind of wondering where, where, why would a sponsor get on board? Um, you know, ten- tennis itself is expensive anyway to host events um, on a weekly basis. It's not, we're not talking you know, if you do look at a, a, a typical men's challenger, a minimum of fifty-four thousand US dollars for a week event, plus all the the, the money on top, it's not. It's it's difficult to to raise that kind of funds, and it's that's pretty obvious. Um, but I I don't see. I mean, you you might have some ideas, but I don't see where you get the dispar- you, you you can tighten up the disparity unless. There's a merger, which uh, I saw recently. The WTA president suggested that the two tours should look at merging, and I, I don't think you'll you'll fix anything unless that is done. Yeah, it's, it it does seem like that's that that's the only real solution, in, unless one or both of the tours independently just decide to to award prize money in a totally different way. I mean, if, if there is enough money to hand Ashley Barty a $4 million check, then I mean, at least we know there's $4 million there. I mean, Ashley Barty is going to be fine if she only gets say a million of those dollars out, out of winning the year end final. So that's, that's $3 million. You could take some money from, from the slams in a sense, that's already what they've done. I mean, the, the slams are already, uh, doing some redistribution by raising the level of, of prize money for first round losers and even into qualifying. I don't think that the, I don't think players playing qualifying are, are making much money for the tournament or even the existence of qualifying is making much money for the tournament. But, uh, the, but the, the events themselves have decided that it's worth supporting that. So some players are able to do okay, um, from that. But I mean, it sounds like you're skeptical of, of a, a merger taking place. Do you think that there's, I mean, the, the WTA would be the obvious beneficiary since they're sort of the junior partner in a lot of these things at the present time. But is there any potential benefit from the ATP's perspective of joining forces? Oh, man, yeah, that's a question and a half because um, I'll end up probably being accused of being sexist. I think, like you say, I think 
you've got to be honest about it and say that a ben- the beneficiary in this would be the females. Um, it's particularly if you merge the two tours and then basically decide that there's got to be equal pay across equivalent tournaments, then the females will undoubtedly benefit because you just have to look at the numbers and then bring in the larger contracts um, and the better prize pools. Is, is it, again, it, it may work for the top 100 players, but I don't know how effective it will be further down the ladder. Um, so it's a really difficult, difficult one to answer, to be perfectly honest. I, I don't know how much appetite there is on the men's side because there are still plenty of players that you hear come out now and again who don't believe equal pay should occur. Um, I actually disagree with that. I do think it, it, at the slams it's absolutely fine to have equal pay. Um, but I think if you then try and force that across the tours as a whole, I just I don't see that there's going to be much appetite for that on the men's side, personally. It does seem tricky that as long as there are separate tournaments, there's going to be separate sponsors, separate prize pools. I mean, you, unless there's a complete and total merger where every event is a joint event, it would be tough to enforce some type of equality. I mean, it, one thing you're pointing out that going back to the the recent blog post you wrote, a big part of the gap but in, in comparing men and women who are at the same level in the rankings, but very different levels financially is sort of the missing challengers like the the men's challenger tour is a a thriving entity there's hundreds of tournaments a year Uh, dozens of countries i think are putting on challengers around the world and it's not 52 weeks a year but it's i don't know 46 or something so tons of opportunities for players uh to, to get to get points to get decent uh prize checks and on the women's side it's mostly 25k so that whole range of $50,000 $50,000 tournaments up to $100,000, $125,000 tournaments. It, it just isn't there. And I mean, this might be another sort of loaded grenade of a question, but it, it, is that again sort of the natural state of the market? Is, is there any reason why, why there should be less interest in women's tennis at that level? Why there should be fewer sponsors or promoters for, for women's tennis at that level? Is, it, is there some reason for that? Again, yeah, it's a difficult question. I think, I, I think that these locations, um, have, you know, limited resources in terms of the amount of money they can put towards a, a week long tournament. So if you're, you know, if you're a, a club in Italy that's looking to host a challenger, um, if you know that it's a minimum of $54,000, the prize pool, you then have to uh, put together accommodation for players now and next year, that changes on the men's side at, at the challenger level. Um, every player gets a minimum of five nights accommodation. Um, so if you think of the, the additional cost that that incurs, um, you know, and all the other little bits and pieces, it's, I don't know whether the economics simply allows for them to have a female tournament also. And I, I think that is a big, big problem. And I think that's one that both the WTA and the ITF need to address. Um, but I don't know that, that they are. I, don't, I just don't see the appetite for, for real change and, and to try and push things forward. It just seems, you know, they'll maintain the status quo as long as the big events are paying the money that, that they need to carry on. And that's all that matters to them. Yeah. And as you point out, you, you, there aren't really voices on the women's side who are agitating about this. And 
to, to shift gears a little bit, one thing that I don't hear people talking about, but I always, it's always what I, I want to hear more people talking about. And since, you know, we're the ones talking, we can control that now. Um, there's all this focus on, uh, on the health of the game at the lower levels and making, making it possible for players to, to make a living outside the top 100. At the same time, even as fans, our main focus is on the top 100 or even higher, the top 50, top 20, whatever. So what we, what I think most of us really care about in the long run is having a healthy competitive game at or near the top. I mean, we want to see entertaining matches at the slams and so on. We want to see young players have a path where like really promising young players can emerge and have an impact on the game. So, I mean, acknowledging this is a, a devilishly tricky question. Are these problems that are holding back the lower levels of the game? Do you think they're having any effect on whether players are able to make it to the top, whether players enter tennis? I mean, it, is there any effect on on what we see at the highest levels? I believe so. And I think the, the LTA in England are a perfect example of that. I think they get a lot of money. Um, you know, we're one of the wealthiest nations in, in tennis terms. And yet we host so very few tournaments um, at the challenger level and below. Now, you if you then compare that to Italy, um, who don't have a Grand Slam, but, you know, they obviously have the Rome Masters. But generally speaking, they are hosting an enormous number of challenges, plenty of futures events and stuff. And you're suddenly seeing that the three, um, well, certainly at one point, the, the three best under 18 players in the world in terms of rankings were recently were all Italians. It's no coincidence, I don't think. I think you need events. I think you need... And you need to be able to inspire people to want to play. And in, the, in, in, in this country, everything is now centralised. They're really focused on having sort of national tennis centres. So all the best players go and play in, in, in those one areas. You know, they're, they're focused on, I think, all the wrong things. And I think if you don't have a healthy grassroots game, um, you know, the, the, the local kid who wants to go and watch a bit of tennis at the weekend or, or just wants to have a... a someone to inspire him there's not going to be anyone there there's it, yeah i think it's i think it's a big issue and i think it's it's you, you need a thriving grassroots game because it just filters upwards and i i think people lose sight of that yeah, that's an interesting point because you're right the the lta has lots of money and they they spend it in various ways that seem designed to build more appeal at the grassroots even if it isn't succeeding the USTA is also absolutely loaded. They're building these huge training centers in Florida and so on. So they're thinking more in terms of of training the best players with the best coaches at one or at a small number of locations. While, as you say, Italy, like there are challengers everywhere. Like I feel like I know more about the geography of Italy than most countries just because of looking up where these challengers are. Uh, and every year there, there's even more new ones. So. I mean, it, it, is that a, a, a better path to go down? I mean, w- would the USTA or the LTA, I mean, it, it, I guess the LTA is already doing it to some extent because of Judy Murray's um, endeavors in Scotland. I mean, it, w- would that be an ex- a good example of what you'd like to see more of, like an effort to to build tennis in in a region that's farther from the center, farther from the traditional uh, tennis center of gravity? Yeah, I, I mean... 
I'm just trying to think off the top of my head. I think in, in the UK this year, we had Challenger, um, you know, in and around the London area. And we had one, we had one in a place, uh, Ilkley, which is sort of Bradford, which is, um, further north. And then obviously you had the Glasgow one not too long ago, but there's barely any. Um, and they're not, I just think you've got to open up the appeal and you've got to be going to different locations, different parts of the UK. Like you say, with Italy, it's all over the country in various different different places. And, and even, I, I think the Glasgow Challenger that you saw in Britain recently was, from what I understand, was almost a panic reaction because the LTA had undergone um, a sort of a marketing campaign to try and, I think get more players, you know, playing tennis or whatever it was, whatever one of their latest great schemes was, but they didn't include the Murrays, and it was it was it was phenomenal. Like you, you're you know your greatest player ever and a brilliant doubles player, and they didn't include either of them in in this marketing. Um, I think they got a lot of backlash for that, and then suddenly this Glasgow challenger pops up out of nowhere. I don't, I just don't see a, a plan. In terms of the tournament, uh, you know, a, a, an identity, a, a, a pathway, something, something obvious that they're doing in terms of trying to increase tournaments, and I think I think it's it's catastrophe in, in, in the way that they're running the game in this country. I think uh, just to quickly point out as well, I think last year, I believe I read that they had an eighteen million pounds salary bill or DLTA, eighteen million for what? You know, look at look at. Uh, the number of players that we're producing at the moment, it's, it's nothing, relatively speaking. So, uh, yeah, it's, it's a shambles from, from a British perspective. I, I don't think anyone likes the LTA, unfortunately. Yeah, that, that's a lot of weight on Jack Draper's shoulders to justify all that expense. Um, so, of, course, of course, his dad was Roger Draper, who used to be head of the LTA. So, um he he has a lot to answer for as well, unfortunately. So it, it, it's kind of an, a paradox here that we can point to the USDA and the LTA as having a lot of money, spending a lot of money, probably squandering a lot of that money. And I don't have a good sense of, of how the federations operate in Italy or, or in France, but they always seem to be the ones that we we point to at in conversations like these like they're doing something different it's more local it's it it has more connection with local fans and it's a bit of a paradox that we we want to somehow have that uh as as a way to spend these millions of dollars or pounds that the the centralized federations have which is seems like a tricky balance like to to have a, a centralized source for all the money but then decentralize and appeal to fans all over the country. I don't know what the what the path is to, to achieve that. Well, we, we, in Britain, it used to be the case that they, they did a lot of sort of bonus payments to, to players. So the guys that were sort of yeah, 200 to say 200, maybe to 500, you know, as they were improving, they would be given additional payments. There were plenty of futures events and then they just scrapped all of that. Um, to, in order to become more centralised. You know, you can kind of understand the logic in terms of they want the best players under one roof, the best coaches and all that sort of stuff. Um, but then it becomes far removed from from your local clubs because it's, it's all about London. Um, it's all about, you know, the National Tennis Centre and that's it. And there, there doesn't seem to be any connect 
connection rather with um, with the local clubs like you seem to see in in places like France and Italy as you mentioned. So I think that's there's, there's two different ways. You know they're going about it a different way, but they're not producing the results. So that's why you have to keep asking questions about whether this is really the best way to go about it. Yeah, so to shift gears to some some more articles you've written in the past, another big topic for the lower levels of tennis. So there's all these 15Ks, there's all these players in the system pretty much devoting their lives to tennis without much of a chance of making a living doing it, at least in the short term. And some of them decide to make money by throwing matches, fixing fixing matches for gamblers. And... This is this is an ongoing problem. The Tennis Integrity Unit has made some noises at various times, but it doesn't seem like much is being done to fix it. So, so what's the what's the Paul Timmons outspoken and annoying answer to this problem? Like, how how do we fix match fixing? Well, first of all, the contract. So the ITF um, offer live scoring, uh, and that has undoubtedly increased the level of corruption at the lowest levels. That contract, as far as I'm aware, doesn't end until 2021. Um, so that's with a company called Sports Radar that they have that live scoring contract. I, I, when I had a look at their um, accounts, the ITF, uh, I think, have an operating income of something like 70 million US dollars. Well, they get 14 million dollars a year from um, Sports Radar. So 20% of their operating income is, fr- is through that contract. There's no desire on their part to end that. Absolutely none, because it's such a significant sum of money to them. So in the short term, what can be done? Nothing. Not not a thing. Why? Because they simply will not turn off the live scoring. They've got no desire to do it, no willingness. Um, let's be clear, they were told in the IRP report, so the Independent Review Panel report, that I think costs something in the region of 20 to 25 million um, that, you know, that they put together with all the Grand Slams and the ATP. They were told to turn off the live scoring. Um, and that was, I think, well over a year ago now. Um, and they've refused to do so. They've, they've implemented all the other changes. So, for example, going to the Monday to Sunday tournaments um, was a recommendation of that panel's report. There. There's various other recommendations that they implemented, but they steadfast they're steadfast on their refusal to um remove live scoring so you're not going to nothing will be achieved that's that's it might sound depressing but that's just the reality of the situation there's no desire on their front so i mean so does that mean everything that the that the itf is doing everything the the tiu is doing which granted is it doesn't seem to be much like I mean, it, it's it's all just sort of a bandaid on a on a gunshot wound. There's they can they can sort of virtue signal their way to to looking like they're doing something about it. But as long as the as long as the data is being delivered, it's it's going to continue to be a problem at about the same level. Absolutely, I, I think if um, I think yeah, the way you just described it is perfect. You know, they've got a bandaid on on something that needs you know stitches, and at some point. Um, once that band, if if that bandaid ever does come off and the and the truth comes out about what's going on at that level, um, it would ruin the sport. You know, it really would. I honestly, tr- I, I truly believe that the level of corruption that, is, that goes on at those lower levels is is phenomenal. There's just no way that you can be 
um, a player who plays 15 and 25 Ks all year round and be profitable. You are losing money, you know, year on year on year. And we're meant and we're kidding ourselves, believing that hundreds of players uh, are doing this every year without resorting to corruption. I mean, like, <laughs> let's be serious about this issue. It's 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 endemic and it's it's a real problem. So you said it's it, the the contract is it fourteen million dollars a year? Is that what you said? Yeah, that's it. Which I mean, as you say, that's a pretty big line item on the the ITF's budget, and I mean it's a pretty big dollar amount for for most of us plebeians as well. But in the grand scheme of the tennis world, it's not that much money. I mean, it's, it 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 can't be much more than the total prize purse for this Shenzhen Tour Finals we were just talking about. I mean, it, is it even as much as the prize purse for the ATP Cup, which just came out of nowhere? I mean, the the no, money is in the sport. I mean, some somebody or some consortium of interested federations and tours, like, they could plug that gap, couldn't they? Yeah, but then uh, you then move on to the internal politics of the ATP against the ITF. Um, again, you know, you're obviously seeing that the, the creation of the ATP Cup. Yeah, I mean, it was uh, it's a completely pointless creation when you've got the Davis Cup, but it's all about control. It's all about money. Um, so they're, they're not really looking to work together to resolve resolve this issue ultimately. Uh, I think the ATP view this as, a, as an ITF problem, um, which, which would be silly because there's clearly fixes going on at the challenger level as well on the ATP side. But um, I think they they see it as an ITF issue and they're not really particularly interested in in helping to resolve it. Um, so it's just going to carry on, unfortunately. So let, let's say we appoint you the commissioner of tennis and give you total power over ATP, WTA, ITF, any other alphabetically uh, named enterprises that exist out there. And your one goal is to eliminate match fixing. What do you do? How do, how do you restructure this whole operation? I would probably, well, I'd immediately turn off the live scoring. Um, I think one of the things I should say is that I gamble on tennis. Now, I don't come at this from someone who gets um, who loses every match that he bets on and, and decides that it must be a fix. I have I have benefited from match fixing uh, in terms of placing a placing a bet that I have that I know consequently has been fixed. Um, I've posted evidence on Twitter of a conversation I had with a gambling company where they weren't willing to pay out my bet that I'd won because there was an ongoing investigation into the game that I bet on. Now, I didn't know that there was a fix going on, but I felt that there was something strange in terms of the pricing, and I tried to take advantage of that. Um, So it's not really necessarily in my interest to have the live scoring stopped, but it's the only way you're going to begin to fix the problem. And I would also... I was dead against this not too long ago, but the more I think about it, the more I believe that you've got to look at a yearly wage or a yearly sort of salary that um, a lot of these players could be paid to help with expenses. Um, Because you cannot eliminate match fixing entirely. But I just think, like you say, with the amount of money that's out out there in the sport, I think if you could find an extra 10 million to help, and just distribute to the guys further down the range 
rankings to help with their travel and, and other bits and pieces like that. I think that would go a long, long way to, to dealing with the issue. And the ATP's done that a little bit, haven't they? Like they, they have some kind of like travel stipend that they give to players in certain ranking ranges. Yeah, I mean, it, it's $4,000. So in a, in a sport where players are flying on a pretty much on a weekly basis, $4,000 doesn't really touch the sides. You know, it, particularly if you then want to have a coach. Um, yeah. You know, you know I mean, $4,000 is a couple of weeks at best. So it's, again, that's putting a plaster on a, on an open wound and just, it's, it's not enough. It, it's something, but it, it's not enough ultimately. I mean, it will buy you a lot of Italian train tickets. That'll get yeah. you a lot of Italian challengers. Yeah, um, no, that's true. But no, I, I hear you with the coaching expenses and, and accommodation and, I mean, everything else that goes into being a professional tennis player. Just uh, one thing that blows me away every time you find a player who was willing to itemize their expenses, I always forget about things like stringing. I mean, even if you have a, an endorsement deal and, and you get all your clothes and, and rackets for free, which is not the case for a lot of these players, of course, then you still got to string these things. And I mean, that, that can cost, uh, what, 20 or $30 per racket, so... Every time you see a string pop, I mean, if it's an ITF tournament, that string popping is, you know, two percent of their winnings for the week going out the window, uh, maybe five percent of their after-tax winnings. So it's it, it's a really tough game. I mean, it just it, it costs so much money. Yeah, it's a lot of hidden costs that, uh, that don't don't get talked about enough. I think for sure. So back to the. Back to the commissioner of tennis perspective, we just lived through the the Davis Cup finals inaugural experience. Uh, we have the ATP Cup coming up, so we're in this bizarre world where it's the off season, and all we can talk about is who's going to play the ATP Cup. Um, so there's they're both basically new events, although they're both tied to old events in different ways. They're turning out to be quite similar with the six groups and and three match ties. There's not a whole lot to separate the two, except there's a few more matches or a few more teams in the ATP Cup and it's a slightly larger scale event. Um, I get the sense you're not a fan of having competing cups like that. That's I I think most people would would agree with you there that we we only need one maximum. but do you think that having one of these as sort of a, a centerpiece for the sport, for the, sort of like having one big Davis Cup-like party uh, for men's tennis, is there a lot of potential there? Is that a net positive for the sport? Absolutely. I think that would be gigantic. Um, I, I mean, I'm a fan of the old Davis Cup format, but um, it, let, let's be clear, that's dead. That's not coming back. Uh, five Five set ties, you know, in... in home and away, et cetera, et cetera. That, that's just not coming back in that format. So you, you've got to look forward. And I think, I think, I think, you know, bringing the men and women together for a, a World Cup of tennis, um, you know, obviously, I don't, not, to, not together, as, you know, we'll have a men's competition and a women's. But I think if you brought that together under one roof, um, you know, and a venue somewhere like Indian Wells, which has plenty of big courts, um, I think that's got a, got a huge potential. But the problem with that is that um, I don't see where the ATP are going to give up calendar spot 
because I think you'd be looking at sort of a two-week thing, something like that. And I don't see where the ATP will give up a calendar spot. So I just think you're going to continue to see this nonsense um, between the two for for some considerable time, unfortunately. Yeah, I I don't remember whether Peter and I got to this in in last week's episode, but it it does seem like it's an obvious move for the ITF that the, the one thing I mean the ITF doesn't have much as we're talking about. I mean, twenty percent of their budget is this data deal, uh, but one thing they do have is is this level of connection with both the men's and the women's tour. So if if they're putting on Davis Cup and they're putting on Fed Cup, then if they're going to redo Fed Cup, let's put them together. I mean, it doesn't have to be Hopman Cup with a mixed doubles element, or it could be like you're suggesting have them be separate events in the same place, kind of kind of like the Olympics. I mean, my my dream, which I only realized recently, was was my dream would be to take the the week of the Olympics and just use that for a joint event uh, in non-Olympic years. I mean, that would create other schedule issues and because everything does. But that seems like one thing that might attract a few people. Um, but if you had to pick one between the Davis Cup finals and the ATP Cup, do you have a do you have a favorite if we had to stick with one of them? I. I even for all its faults, I'm going to choose the Davis Cup because for me personally, I think the ATP Cup has been created out of greed. I think it's been created um, and it's caused problems for the Davis Cup. And I don't I don't see that it's, it's been created to benefit the sport. I just think they've seen an opportunity to make plenty of money. And it's got no history, so I'm not interested in it, quite frankly. Um, the, you know, the, the ATP should have just found or should be trying to find a way to, to make the Davis Cup the best possible competition it can be. And I don't see that they're doing that, so I'm not going to support what they're doing now. Yeah, I can yeah. I can understand that perspective. There's it's, Certainly there's a lot of money sloshing around uh, down there, just looking at the at the prize purse and, and all the venues they're having it at and so on. Um, that said, I mean, one, one thing that I think is really appealing is, about these events is the team component. And it's something that Noah Rubin has talked about. He thinks there's more room for, for team events in tennis. And one advantage of the ATP cup is we, we are talking about the difficulties for players outside the top 100 to make a living. It's, it's not helping everybody, but there are some players outside the top 100 who are getting pretty substantial paydays just from being part of the ATP cup. Maybe ATP cup isn't the solution, but if you do have, teams that are earning the money then the teams can choose to distribute money differently do you think there's there's a path from having more team events maybe not this one but some increased level of team events that would address some of the inequality issues we're talking about potentially but then i would need someone to show me how it works um because i've, I've been always, i've been against it um but i'm not against like innovation and, and new ideas or anything like that but just show me, show me how it's going to work. Um, and I don't, I don't see how anyone can. I also think that, I also think that team competitions in the way that they get described, uh, only tend to benefit players from sort of more economically developed nations. So if, what by that I would mean, if, if you were creating a team, um, in the US, you know, like they've got the world tennis, uh, team event there anyway. But if you, if you're creating a team, um, you're, if you had, let's say, I'll pick Radu Albot from like Moldova. Let's say he was a lot further ranked, you know, ranked a lot further down than he currently 
apparently is. He was 120 in the world, and you had Noah Rubin at 130 in the world. Um, in terms of creating your team, Noah Rubin is going to offer a lot more to you because he's an American, because there's sponsorship opportunities that American companies could give to your team that a Rado Albot's not going to be able to offer. Um, and so, uh, so I don't know how a team a team event works that's fair and equitable for everyone involved. I would need, you know, the whole point of a team is you get to pick pick who you, who you want to to be in it. So I would need someone to really explain to me how how you would get it to work. I guess. Yeah, it it, it would be a challenge. I mean. It, what I, th- what makes me think there's some potential there is just looking at existing team sports and the fact that once you, once your sport is a team sport, then it's easier for players to organize. It's easier for, um, for the players to, to get some kind of minimum salary. So for instance, in, in Major League Baseball, I think the, the minimum salary for a player on a, a Major League roster is something like 400,000 US dollars a year, uh, which is, much more than they're worth in in promotional value, let's say, to the team. But, you know, you've got to have a backup catcher and you have to have a 12th pitcher and so on. So there are some of these guys who, by no stretch of anyone's imagination, are worth $400,000, but there are 600 or so jobs at that level every year, which, would, would, I mean, baseball's at a different level than tennis, but certainly tennis would like to have 600 jobs like that. Uh, but that would require just a wholesale restructuring of the sport to being entirely team oriented. Now the team events are are built around celebrities in the same way that every other event is. So all the money's going to go to making sure Nadal and Djokovic show up. I guess Federer won't show up even if you give him the money. So uh, so you are stuck with the same question. Yeah, I, I think it stops becoming a meritocracy, um, and you know then suddenly it's about your value to that team as well. So. Um, does to, it, I don't see that you necessarily have the absolute best players playing. It's because because for from a team manager's point of view, it's about the economics as well. So I, I don't know. I, I just I love the fact that you know tennis is is a one on one sport where um, the best players rise to the top, and I just I just worry that the team element completely takes that away from the sport. So I don't know. I'm not I'm not sold on that. Yeah, I mean, they're, they're, I think they're good questions you raise, and it would take it, it would take a long time to get us to the point where we'd have a more team oriented sport, and that would work to the advantage of of players further down the ladder. You mentioned Radu Albit, and one of our um, one of our responders on Twitter asked us to talk about Emil Rusevori from Finland, and yeah. obviously very different cases these two, but they're both by far and away the best player in their country. Uh, and these are both countries with not a lot of tennis, not a lot. I don't think a lot of support for tennis. Finland more than Moldova. Uh, I mean, Finland obviously is much richer, and they they host a couple tournaments, but not a lot of tennis going on in Finland. Um, how severe are the challenges facing someone uh, who is? representing a country with with very little support for tennis i mean how does that affect their their chances of success on tour their finances on tour and so on you need you need a financial backer ultimately um i mean you you have to imagine that these guys have to show unbelievable promise as a junior you know they've got to be 
the best of the best at, at their age group because they need a financial backer. Um, Moldova is not putting large sums of money into um, Albot's tennis career. Um, so it's, I mean, I believe that, you know, Yelena Ostapenko obviously won the Roland Garros, but she, she had um, a considerable financial backer um, throughout her career when she was younger. Um, you know, she comes from obviously Latvia. Um, you know, th- these countries that host maybe a couple of futures a year or whatever, um, if that, they're not able to help their players. So it's, um, yeah, it's, it's incredibly difficult. I, I, I just don't see how in a sport like ours you, you survive without big financial help. Yeah, and I suspect that there's a lot more of that kind of help than we ever hear about. Like I did my my sort of gut feeling, which is based on zero evidence whatsoever, but I'm I'm sticking with it, is that's the relationship between Simona Halep and Ian Tiriak. I mean I you can easily imagine Ian Tiriak you know, throwing a few million dollars to the side to support promising Romanian players that he likes. Uh, and I'm sure that it's it it happens in other countries as well, uh, with people who are a lot less visible than than Ian Tiriak. And you have to wonder a little bit whether that is part of the solution. I mean, just let that be more, uh, more visible, make it more transparent. So a young American who's promising will get some sponsors backing, will, um, they'll get signed by Nike or Adidas or something. Uh, probably players in France and Italy w- will as well, but that pl- equivalent player in Moldova doesn't get it. So maybe there's a way of, of opening them up to more sponsorship or some kind of partnership and future earnings or something. I don't know. And that's probably a topic for a, another podcast. Um, but let's talk a little bit about actual players. You've been talking on Twitter about starting a, starting to write a series about interesting young players. And I mean, let's, let's focus on the relatively short term. So think about the 2020 ATP season. Who are the young players you are, are most excited to be watching next year? Definitely Bruce Ford. Um, I mean, he, he was uh, ranked 410 in the world in mid-June, and he now currently sits at 124 in the world. You know, he won four challenges, reached the final of another. I mean, uh, he, he did that in the space of five months. It was incredible. Um, but I, I'm, right, I'm in the middle of writing about him now, but, you know, I, I do say that I think he's... You have to note he's got the level of competition he's faced. He's not beaten anyone higher than 116 in the world, um, despite winning all those titles. So, so there's big question marks about his ability to then step up to the next level. But um, I'm, I'm always keen for players from a country like Finland to, to make that step because I just think it's better for the sport all round. Um, you know, because the more countries you have, the better. Um, and then I like the, the young German Rudolf uh, Molika as well. Um, he, he's quite incredible, I think, Jeff, because he's, he's, he's 19. He won the whole bronze challenger last year, um, so about 18 months ago. But he has won no other professional tournament aside from that challenger and yet sits at 167 in the world. That's, um, it's actually quite difficult to do, really. Really, not to have at least one, you know, a few futures or whatever to get that high in the world. Um, I, I, I love his game. He's unbelievably attacking. Um, I, I, I believe he's had some off-court issues, but he's back with a coach now. And um, 
I, I, I think once he puts his game together, he's going to fly up the rankings. So Malika Rusevori, do you think either of those guys are as good or could be as good as Yannick Sinner? No, I think I think quite honestly, in terms of the future, you, the, the guys who are already at the top plus Yannick Sinner are the type of guys that you're going to see for the next decade. So, you know, your um, Sverevs, Sitsipas, um, Felix, you know, Shapovalov, all of those guys are already um, right up there, sort of top 20, top 10, etc. I think if you throw in Yannick Sinner, who I really like the look of, um, I don't see a lot of a lot of potential in the other guys to, to be major winners because I think those guys are going to be around for a long time. So you're predicting another sort of big four era. No, not four necessarily, but a big no, six or yeah. seven. Yeah, I think we, you know you throw in Medvedev. Um, teams, teams still got plenty of years left in him, um, and then yeah, Sverev, Tsitsipas, Shapovalov. Yeah, Yannick Sinner and Felix, I think those are your guys that are going to make up your top ten. And then I think they'll be sharing around the majors. I don't think there's a particularly dominant uh, dominant one between those sort of guys. I, I don't see it. Yeah. So in in your, I think this was your most recent blog post, you had a wish list for 2020. And one of the items on your wish list was a new major winner on the men's side. So if if you had to predict who that's going to be, who do you who's your pick? See, I want it to be Medvedev. That's that's who I would like it to be. Um, I think his US Open run, all the antics that went on, they were incredible. I mean, that was that was golden TV from start to finish with uh, Medvedev. Uh, I, I think it. I think it could be team. I think you're looking at probably team as your next next likely winner. And presumably at Roland Garros. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm not sure that anyone new wins a major next year. Um, so I think it might be team. Yeah, I guess team at Roland Garros, but I don't know when. Um, you know, every, every year I keep thinking that these the, the big three cannot continue to do what they're doing and they keep doing it. So I'm not going to write them off. <laughs> I think you'd be pretty foolish at this stage to, to start trying to do that. Yeah, I did. During, I think it was during the World Tour Finals, maybe one of the last few weeks, someone was posted an article from maybe it was 2013. Some British journalist was explaining why Nadal's knees weren't going to last him another two years or something. I'm getting the years wrong, but a lot we've been we've been forecasting uh, the downfall of these guys, the downfall of Nadal's body for a really long time. And yeah, as you say, we you can only be proven wrong so many times before you just give up making these these projections. So now that we're ready to give up, maybe it's finally time for for somebody to come through and win a new one. Yeah, uh, I, I, I thought after Australia that Federer wouldn't particularly have a great year, and then I, I don't know how he didn't win Wimbledon. I mean, that's going to be one of life's greatest mysteries. But yeah, he's thirty eight years old, and he just. He continues to perform at the level he is. It's, it's amazing, absolutely amazing to watch. Okay, so one last question, and I'm, I'm going to paraphrase you, and hopefully I don't get it too wrong, but I, I want to give us both one more chance to, to lose some friends while we're recording. Uh, 
you don't seem to be a big fan of a lot of tennis journalism. I want to say you called it inherently corrupt or something like that. Um, can can you can you unpack that a little bit for us? Well, I don't. Yeah. Okay. So there's uh, there's a podcast, and if you find out who that is, good on you. But I won't name them. Um, it might who, be a it might be a tennis podcast. We won't name any names, but it's a tennis podcast. Yeah, something like that. Um, they, uh, you know, they, to be fair to them, they revealed that they were um, given money um, by sort of PK and Cosmos to promote um, the Davis Cup, and they then sort of said, but you know, we told them that we will um, say what we want to say, etc., cetera, etc., cetera. Um, which may be true, but you know, I don't buy that it doesn't in some way slightly cloud what you're about to say when you know you've been given some money you, you know it might make you hold back just that little bit um and i think just generally speaking across the sport these guys are being given inducements and but also they just don't want to upset the apple cart they don't want to have their, their passes taken away from them to turn up at these luxurious locations um and I just don't think they're willing to talk about the issues that really need to be discussed. Um, I don't know if I blame them. They've all got bills and et cetera to pay, but I don't think you get a, a fair and accurate representation of a lot of what goes on in the tennis world because of it. Yeah. I mean, it, it's not a, it's not an easy time for journalism in general. So you can understand that, that some of these guys, well, men and women, uh, there, there are trade-offs that need to be made if they're going to continue to do tennis journalism in some form or other, but I, I share your frustrations. Do you think that tennis is worse than other sports in this regard? Yeah, I, I, I'm trying to think off the top of my head, like, of, you know, a mainstream journalist who really digs, you know, digs the dirt up on the sport and, and exposes what's going wrong. Um, and there isn't anyone that I can think of and that's a, a real shame uh, I think one of the best journalists I've, I don't know if you know much about cycling but David Walsh um, you know the, the way that he went after Lance Armstrong um, you know the darling of cycling who made them tens of millions but David Walsh absolutely steadfast refused to to bow down and, and accept um, what was being said about Lance and continued to accuse him of being a doper etc etc and I just I don't see that in, in this for, I don't see, every now and again you'll get a corruption story come out and the BBC did a, did a piece about, about it, but there's no one who will write about the things that aren't, that aren't being discussed and doing it on a regular basis. And I, I, I believe that there's space for it, I believe there's interest for it, but you, you've got to be brave enough to want to do it to begin with, I think. So that there's interest for it. Do you think there's a business model for it? Yeah, that's, that's a good question. I don't know necessarily. Oh, I don't know because I, I think if you're, again, David Walsh was writing for the Sunday Times about uh, about cycling before cycling. You know, the, the Sunday Times at that point wasn't um, in the in the business of cycling, it wasn't you know um, Great Britain wasn't having the success under Team Sky at that point, and yet he was writing about it and it was making a big splash for them. Um, so if if you if you're doing good journalism, um, I'd like to think it just draws eyeballs 
and, and people are going to want to read and, and, and therefore you can sort of piggyback off of that. You know, the, the better that your writing is, the more, the more you're exposing things, the more, the more eyeballs and, and interest you'll draw. So it's, it's a kind of a trade off. You've got to be willing to do it to begin with, I think. Yeah. And it, and it might be that it needs to come from outside the sport. I mean, the, the, there was a big article a few years ago from Buzzfeed news that, that launched a lot of the discussions about match fixing. And I mean, you can, you can say good and bad things about Buzzfeed news, but I mean, they did attack that topic and it's not a typical tennis source. So they didn't, these weren't writers who were worried about getting an interview with Federer next week or getting their press pass in Dubai or something. Um, so maybe that's how it has to work. I mean, the backing has to come from from a novel source or at least a, a non-tennis or an even non-sports source. But that can be tricky. I mean, I think journalists yeah, in all, I, all areas are facing that. And just a really quick point like, on, on that. You know, one of the things that if you look at the juniors and um, the junior rankings are now sponsored by IMG, the, the big you know agency that. Um, big huge sports agency. The IMG also own tournament rights. Um, you know, IMG offer, um, are involved in the live scoring on the ATP side. Um, IMG hoover up all the young talent in tennis. Um, you know, th- this is not, this is fact, factual. You know, that's the reality. IMG have an enormous amount of influence in the sport and yet no one seems to question it. No one, Yes, so I don't know. I don't know what I don't know what it is about tennis. You know, again, just a quick point. When do you ever hear about top players being done for doping or anything like that? Are we really going to tell ourselves that no players at the elite level are doping? Every other sport seems to have an issue with it, but tennis doesn't. You know, um, I, I don't know. I just, I just, yeah, I find it strange. You just tennis seems to be a sport where everything sort of rubs off and. Nothing seems to stick, and and yeah, I find I do find it very strange. Got to be honest. Do you think that that has something to do with the fact that the the governing bodies are so fractured that there there's no one who can sort of serve as a counterweight to IMG and all of their presumably money making goals in the sport? Yeah, it's very true. But then also, um, I think I wrote. Did a my my end of season blog where I just handed out some some awards, you know, some semi serious and and whatnot. But I said like David Haggerty, the head of the ITF, the president, is my villain of the year. I mean, this is a guy who got involved with the Davis Cup changes, the Fed Cup changes, put together the new ITF tour that collapsed within seven months, um, and then wins the presidential runoff in the first round. You know, they didn't even have to go to second or third round. He won so many votes in the first round that he becomes president again. It's the, the, the guy has a rap sheet of utter failure as the ITF president and yet can get voted back in, you know, almost unanimously. It's, it's, it's <laughs> you know, that, that's a story. That's one that people should be investigating and asking, how is that possible? But um, I don't see anyone doing it. Well, the the fifty thousand pound fundraising effort. Maybe we ought to redirect that to to you or other interested muckraking journalists to uh, get into some I of this have, stuff. So I had to get involved in that. Uh, 
<laughs> what I do for a living, I'm more than happy with. I'm not going to waste my time on that nonsense, unfortunately. I just wish the people that were paid to do it were willing to. Yeah, that's a that's a good uplifting note to end on. Um, the, <laughs> the failures at every level of the sport. Um, thank you, Paul. I really appreciate you coming on and sharing your thoughts about this stuff. No problem. I, I will end it by saying I do love the sport and I think it's great. And I, I'm really looking forward to next season. So I'll try and be a bit more uplifting. Yeah, by, by then there will be a lot to be excited about. And, and hey, for all the complaints that you hear in tennis about having no offseason, the upside is there's almost no waiting. We'll have live tennis again in about a month. So lots to look forward to. So thanks, everyone, for listening. Um, thanks to Paul. You can find him at writing at mytennisadventures.home.blog. You can find him on Twitter at Paul T underscore tennis or linked from probably wherever you find this podcast. So thanks again, Paul. Thanks for listening. Uh, this has been episode 79 with me, Jeff Sackman of, the, of Tennis Abstract and the Tennis Abstract podcast. And we'll see you next time.